Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher, I'm the editor at the GRC Institute, and today we have with us our CEO, Naomi Burley. Hi, Naomi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Kwame. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Um, so we are going to have a chat about our recent conference. Uh, so those of you who attended or at least intended to <laughs> attend, um, the conference theme was Pulse Points, Delivering Strategic Compliance. And it was, well, I thought it was a great, you know, it's a hybrid event. So we had some people in different rooms. We we had everything online. Uh, so no excuses. <laughs> Yeah, no, but it was really good to see people in see people in the room again and speakers in the room. It was very exciting. So I think we could really just jump straight into it with this this debrief. You know, of course, one of the biggest draws to our conference always is having the regulators in the room, or in, in some cases, and on teams <laughs> talking to yep. people in the rooms. Uh, just sort of giving their, I guess, their two cents, um, their expectations, um, what they think people could be doing better in terms of the reporting um you know what's coming in the future and that kind of thing yeah so i sort of throw it at you first was the with the regulators was there anything that you found was particularly interesting or something to latch on to well look everything they said of course <laughs> um but i think the i think the really interesting things with the regulators with these because i do you know have quite a few meetings with them in the lead up to it is that although they know the theme we always say to them you don't have to adhere to our theme you know, what our members want to hear is how they should prepare, what you are seeing out there. They want to be able to get a gut feel for how they're benchmarking against others in the industry and whether they need to lift their game and, you know, sort of have some pre-warning if they might be getting a visit or if there's regulatory change in the pipeline. Um, and I think we got all of that from everybody. And what I found interesting is that certainly for me, and maybe it's just where I was listening from, a lot of it correlated with our theme around the assurance that was led off with the keynote um, because it's it's one thing to have implemented your program and most of our, well, all of our member organisations will have implemented a pretty mature program by now, you know, experienced compliance professionals. So our members don't often reflect the whole of market because there's quite a few people out there who don't have a qualified compliance professional working for them. Um, they are a member who's doing ongoing professional development. So their compliance programs are going to be quite immature in comparison. However, um, you know, it reaches the point where you want to do that continual improvement piece and you want to you, you want to understand how it's working and contribute strategically. And that's that that's that assurance piece where everybody's doing something different to all be on the same page with achieving those compliance objectives as well as other objectives. And I think the interesting thing with with um, regulation is it's even though it's principles based, it's getting increasingly sophisticated, and so is our uh, our regulators' understanding of what's possible within the market, or their expectations are certainly rising, particularly with the technology challenges, um, new products engaging with technology or using technology, or even just technology products. Um, and so, you know, there's there's the bar is rising all on its own. And we need to keep up. So I think that that was one of the big themes is that um, regulators, regulators are taking a really big picture strategic approach to tackling some of the challenges rather than doing line by line regulation themselves. They're not prescriptive. So we can't do line by line compliance. 
that's where I'm sort of going with that. And I think with Sean Hughes opening it up, that was a really full-on session and, and Sean covered a lot of territory. But I think, you know, it all goes back to that same theme is uh, around the culture and really and really um, embedding the values-led compliance and values-led thinking within an organisation to analyse potential problems from both a customer and regulatory and organisational focus. And so that's, I think that's what they're trying to achieve with the whole sort of um, product governance um, regime. And it's certainly where they want to go with FAR when that's adopted as well, is having a big picture strategic idea of um, what's going on in your organisation and monitoring it proactively to ensure that there's no customer harm as opposed to coming up with really inventive products, launching them out there and then moving on to the next thing. Um, and so I think, you know, some really big themes came out of that, that the, the, the kind of things we've been talking about for a long time is that you should be collecting data about your products and your performance and your sales and using that intelligently for thematic reviews. Um, and you should be, um, you know, engaging with the organisation to think about it at that at that high level and, again, not get bogged down in um can we do it because of this line of regulation versus the big picture? Should we do it? Is it is it a smart move for us? Is it a smart move for our customers? Kind of thing. Uh, so I thought. If I could, sorry, sorry, if I could yeah. just jump in there for a second for for any listeners who might be new to the compliance field. Uh, Sean Hughes is from the Australian Securities and Investments oh, sorry, Commission. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and the FAR is the Financial Accountability Regime, which is set to replace the Banking Executive Accountability Regime. I'm still always disappointed they didn't call it fear. But anyway, <laughs> um, so that's going to come in and that's about, you know, really taking that three lines and making it a living document. So your compliance and risk functions won't be getting the accountabilities for compliance and risk assigned to them. The business executives and um, and boards will be having those accountabilities assigned to them. Anyone in the organisation who actually makes the decisions that make you compliant or non-compliant or expose you to risk, as opposed to the people who design the frameworks. And that's going to be a real shift for some organisations because they might say it, but they don't actually understand it. So it affects and has flow-on effects for a whole lot of things because I think if an organisation is smart, it will have that flow-on effect into the remuneration structures. And, you know, that's something that, that APRA has been talking about for a long time is, is what, gets, what gets rewarded gets done and you might need to think in a really clever way about rewarding other things that would shift your culture in the right direction. Um, so, yeah, so uh, ASIC had, had some interesting things to say. I thought one of the other interesting things to, because, like I said, it covered a lot of territory. There was a whole thing around cyber and being able to provide advice um, and thinking about the tech that you've got employed in that advice space as well. Um, crypto and who's investing in crypto, whether you're involved in that. So there's lots of really quite um, technical questions that organisations need to answer and really have thought through the risks of before they jump into that pool, in, in my opinion. Really, really think through those scenarios. And a bit like the product governance regime, you need to think about, you know, any advice tech you've got out there, any kind of crypto stuff, think about the life cycle of that. How are you going to monitor that it's actually doing what you thought it was going to do and and um, that it's delivering the value to your organisation as well as your customer. Um, 
I think that um, it's a really interesting time, you know, when you go into an economic downturn and people are looking for investment returns, it's very, very tempting to go into high-risk situations. Um, and there have been, you know, already incredible losses in the crypto space, not just from crypto high-risk investments, but from scams as well. So when you get in that technology space, you you're really you're really caught in that and that has lots of implications for financial institutions as well. But um but you know, it's it's lots and lots to think about and really prompts our members to to contribute their critical thinking skills about the potential risks exposures for all stakeholders in that environment, including the business itself. Um, yes. I think the other quick one I did want to touch on from them is around, you know, the sustainable finance and green investment offerings that a lot of organisations are throwing out under their ESG heading. The the thing to be really careful about there, and we touched on it later on in the day, is that although in Australia this is not um, a closely regulated at the moment, there's been some very high-level statements around climate change risk and around um green claims and that kind of thing. We haven't sort of gone down the road of Ireland and, and the UK yet. Um, there, was a, there was a warning from ASIC that there are, there are, um, there are international standards out there and um, that the regulators may then be looking to uh, ask you to achieve those measures to demonstrate the claims of the product around green stuff. So, you know, it's sort of it was an on you're on notice kind of comment. Um, I don't think our regulators are going to bother to reinvent the wheel either. I think that they would go to those international standards because they're produced by experts in this field and there's no reason why you couldn't say if you're going to do climate change reporting, it should be consistent with an international standard. Uh, and I guess... Time. Also, um, the, both the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission and ASIC have both put out communications about greenwashing and that they're looking at it from a misleading um, conduct perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. And it falls into two things. You know, organisations will be using that those claims to, uh, you know, to, to prop up their ESG um, claims as well so you know be really careful you haven't built your organization isn't building all of that on um on data it can't support yep. or you know or you're even on no data whatsoever so yeah be really really careful of that make sure it's substantial um and make sure it can be demonstrated so it goes back to the whole really good compliance and risk hygiene having reliable data to base those decisions on and monitoring it you know, so again, it goes back to those three lines, but we've seen it time and time again um, that organisations, not necessarily our member organisations, that organisations develop these products, send them out to do stuff, and then never look at them again. Um, and it's and then later on when they're asked sort of questions, there's a scramble. It's usually thrown to the compliance department to scramble about and find the data that will support whatever the claims were in the beginning, and either there was no information collected. Or then that, that's when they find out that it was all theoretical. <laughs> so, so prepare and make sure your organisation's doing its homework. Um, I think the, you know, moving then into the APRA one, still on a very similar theme. Regulators trying to solve big cultural problems from their side with very principles-based regulation and guidance. 
and um, then sort of having to do the deep dives themselves and reflect on what organisations have done and, and come to some agreement or disagreement, usually, about whether they think the organisations actually met the mark with, with those efforts. I think what was interesting is because we've got a continued interest in their um, risk culture 10 dimensions paper is that, um, you know, again, raising, raising the bar without saying we're raising the bar. APRA doesn't want organisations to go off and mirror those 10 dimensions and copy them and do only those. <laughs> he was very careful it's, to say it wasn't a checklist here. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's a, <laughs> start that conversation. So it's, again, that strategic conversation. Do these dimensions even work for us? What would we add in that's more substantial and understandable for our people? So it really is demonstrating that you, that you went through the process and came up with your own, you know, more than anything else. Um, and, you know, as we know, African APRA have been working together um, quite closely in recent times and they will also be doing so as they move, um, you know, bear into far. APRA has lots of learnings from bear, as do our members who went through that with their organisations to pass on. And, um, and there will be some joint guidance released. So we were warned uh, by Sean about a lovely Christmas present and a whole lot of reading to do. And just for so those listening again, um, APRA is the Australian Prudential and Regulation Authority, just in case we have any new members who are not accustomed. Yeah, no, no, that's yeah. good. Thank you. <laughs> um, for those people who have lingering questions about CPS 230 and operational resilience, it's obviously the comments closed tomorrow. Um, they... The early indications are that they've already received quite strong feedback about that. We may see some amendments, but nothing was promised. Um, so that's still very much in a to-be-watched space. It's a pretty interesting um, consultation paper and with some some pretty short timeframes to implement if you were genuinely going to implement it. Um, and some really big asks, especially around third and fourth party risk. So um, if you haven't looked at CPS 230, it'd be a good idea to have a look at that and have a look at some of the responses as they're published. Um, and GRC will be putting one in as well. Um, which sort of leads us into Austrac had very similar themes. And, you know, it's interesting, the overlap with, with all the regulators with something that could be classed as, as, a, um, as a privacy breach with the Optus breach. It's, it's uh, something that ASIC referenced. It's something that APRA re referenced as a cyber, you know, because they're, they're all interested in cyber and they're interested in the systems being fit for purpose for that organisation as well. Um, and Austrac also touched on this as well because this flows into the financial crime space, identity theft, fraud, all of those things. So they have, um, in case our members weren't aware or hadn't been paying attention, this obviously flows into your suspicious matter reporting if you feel that a customer's um, at risk or there's something, there's a suspicion, suspicion being formed and you think it might relate to the Optus breach. They've got a reference code that they've published on their website, which I think I wrote down, hopefully is correct, but double check, FA43407 to include in your SMR reporting because that will then help their analysts pick that up quite quickly and see how it's related to things. And I will make um, sure there's a link in the uh, podcast notes for that, that piece of information from the, the and Austrac is the Australian Transaction Reports Analysis Centre. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, they have, uh, so a lot of their news was around um, the their release of a whole lot of resources from Austrac, which has been, 
you know, a really outstanding piece of work from Austrac over the last few years as they've built up their their own library of resources and we use them in our AML course as well. Um, so they've uh, got a whole lot of detailed risk assessments for different industry, especially around for bullion dealers. And I know this doesn't affect everyone, but it's an interesting piece of work. It's always worth reading stuff that's outside your own sphere of experience. One, because you might not always work just in that sphere of experience. And two, because the thinking that goes into the risk assessment is the interesting part. Um, especially for a lot of our members, this is an external threat risk, not necessarily an internal compliance risk. And sometimes our members are a bit limited in their thinking because they're thinking internally, well, how could we breach the regulations as opposed mm. to how would someone try and use our products to break the law? So it's a little bit of a shift in thinking. They've updated the threat um, uh, overview in the superannuation sector, and I think that that's a really important one to have a little bit of a look at because it's a very complicated sector when it comes to AML or fraud um, implications. And they've also uh, got their financial crime guides updated for digital currency, ransomware, and emergency support payments because obviously there's been a lot of activity um, in that space during the COVID period. Um, there's also, uh, I think he mentioned as well, they were updating their cuckoo smurfing, which I still love. <laughs> the name of um and uh and there's and Austrac is still very interested in making sure organizations are um asking the questions they need to ask and and getting that level of assurance and comfort around source of funds and source of wealth with customers as well um they are Austrac are also um releasing some e-learning modules for new reporting entities and so that can also be worth if you're moving into the aml space that can be worth having a little bit of a look on their app uh, on their website as well for their resources. So make use of anything you can get that's free, that's what I say, for, from regulators. And if it's from the regulator, then it really is giving you an indication of how they would like you to do things. Even though it's principles-based regulation, they do have an opinion on how they'd like things done. Um, uh, and so I think that, that that was the big, you know, sort of the big um, numbers from those. They are... Um, they are seeing uh, that um, there are more uh, entities trying to, you know, sort of go through the enhanced registration process. And the interesting part for a lot of people, it's obviously shifted over time, is that Austrac are expecting that your AML and CTF systems and controls will be in place before your registration, whereas obviously when we first began the regime, you registered and then got your act together. Um, so I think that that also means, and this is a note for our members, there might might be a whole lot of expertise poaching um, as these entities want to become registered and uh, are regulated as well, that they're going to need some AML expertise out there. So um, you might have a staff retention issue if more of them apply. Um, uh, and Austrac also spoke uh, quite a bit about the Fintel Alliance. So for those who don't know about the Fintel Alliance, it's, it's a pretty uh, unique arrangement between a regulator and the um, organisations they also regulate, where they have open and frank discussions and try and anticipate issues that are arising in there. So that now includes some crypto providers. Um, and you know, that has really already demonstrated a huge uplift according to, to Austrac with a fourfold increase in the SMR reporting from that sector alone. Um, 
bearing in mind that everyone should be aware that digital currency, like cash, has always been attractive to criminals and will continue to be so because there is some kind of pseudo-anonymity um, in there. So, uh, you know, and, and then there are technological ways being created all the time to get around, um, you know, disclosing identities of recipients and at each end of the chain. So it's a very, very complicated industry. We've got a few members um in that industry as well. So definitely worth keeping an eye on what goes on and and going back to that question that Austrack was emphasising, you know, source of funds, source of wealth, knowing your customer, all those basics around those. Um, I think that that was, you know, I'm sure they had more to say, but, um, you know, they, they talked around also what's being done well, which I thought was really good. It's a nice way to round out the Austrack session. Um, because there is an increase in AML investment. We've seen that as well. Um, there has been an increase, in their opinion, in proactive thematic reviews to identify issues. Um, they do think that um, there needs to be more sophisticated analysis of those, I think, as well. But again, I think that that will increase with the maturity of professionals in that space. Um, and we know and, and we have fed back to Austrack as well that like a lot of lot of compliance positions, people are having trouble recruiting really experienced and qualified professionals. So there's a lot of learning on the job to go and, and it's hard to get traction on your maturity uh, when the person in the role is still acquiring their experience as they go along. So I'm, I'm sure that will improve over time. Um, what, where they thought that there needed to be improvement in that space is around um, the assurance framework. So, again, I thought that that was very much on theme with what we are seeing as well. There might be a program in place, but the assurance may not be as, as mature as it could be. First line may not be taking responsibility. And we know we've had members complain about the volume of the transaction alerts that's then left to a small team to go through as opposed to other areas of the business taking responsibility for that part. So I think organisations could take a step back and have a look at how they can get better return on investment in their assurance space because if you're going to leave it up to second line um, AML and risk, it's just going to be a huge volume of work that can detract from doing anything with the results as well. Um, yes, and then, you know, the, the perennial problem of, making sure your controls are actually um, effective and testing them on a regular basis and having a level of assurance around the controls themselves. Um, which brings us to probably the hot ticket for the, for the whole session, which is no offence to the rest of the regulators, but given the recent headlines, um, uh, uh, was the Privacy Commission talking through um, their expectations. I thought it was a really interesting, you can see, having watched a number of these, the um, level of maturity of the regulator themselves and their understanding of what's going on and their um, growing expertise in tapping the risks around this and the emerging, again, technology was a theme in this. You know, the whole biometric space and... Um, and organisations collecting data and data being a valuable asset of organisations, 
it's sort of turned on its head from a privacy perspective in terms of understanding why you're collecting it and being really, really clear why you're collecting it, how long you actually need to keep it for, mm. as well as obviously storing it and making sure it isn't hacked, yep. but, you know, being really, really clear. So they revisited some of the determinations that they'd had previously about um, biometrics, and I think that that's, you know, that's an important thing to keep to the principles of those. Um, you know, we've reiterated it a number of times. There's... Um, there's the the seven eleven determination about the face prints, which is which flows into all of the other ones about um, you know I think they mentioned was it um, in the shopping centres I think they gave an example and everything and I didn't write it down good one um, but it's all around it's a very attractive thing to collect it and I'm sure we all think it's incredibly useful to get to know who our customers are what their needs are so. On a, on a business decision-making process, it all makes perfect sense. Then you have to put the privacy lens over and go, okay, well, that's well and good, but then, how, again, how long do you actually need to keep those biometric fingerprints for? Yep. Once you've done the analysis, is that enough? You know, you could get rid of them. And if you're going to keep something that is so very, very essentially personal and it's very personal information, then you need to make sure that is absolutely secure. But, but I think the I think the fundamental question that that the privacy commissioner was emphasising is ask the question yourself first. Do you need to collect it? Yep. Are you only going to use it for the purpose for which it's collected? Um, and you know, once you've used once you've had that purpose or you verified the person, do you need to actually keep it? And they recognise that there might be regulatory overlap between keeping proof of ID with some other regulators. And then that that then goes in the basket where you tick yes we do need to keep it now what are you gonna now how are you gonna guard, safeguard it so yeah, I, um, and I guess what's top of mind because you use the word personal is of course the the podcast we did with Bronwyn maybe about two weeks ago um, asking that question if you understand the difference under the Privacy Act between personal and sensitive information and I think yeah. the determination is that the biometric data falls into the sensitive category, which means it affords yep. greater protections. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. So um, so they, they went through a number of really, really interesting case studies there. And I think that, the, that a lot of those questions were going back to the big theme, the can we, should we questions. And I think that this is, again, where you get you get really strategic with compliance. It's all very line by line. You might get, you know, gone to the old days where you can say, okay, well, it hasn't crossed the line into the we can't space. I think we need to really move that up. But it's, you know, where you have that risk culture overlay. You have that should we overlay where you go, but it's too much of a risk to do it. It's not a palatable risk from a reputational, um, building trust with our customers, uh, or it doesn't actually advance your strategic aims. I mean, that's the other thing to stand back to from, from a business. How much does the risk actually advance your strategic objectives as an organisation? Um, because there's very little return on investment to skate that close to the wire if it's not really bringing you any real returns. That's the other thing. Um, so, you know, not making business decisions in an isolated environment and bringing it all back to a whole of organisation piece. I think is the really important um, important piece there, which which sort of brought us full circle to ASCA, um, which 
is the you know the financial complaints um, authority and um, you know sort of replacing a whole lot of ombudsman work where you can't resolve where a customer can't resolve a complaint with an organisation, it may then be referred on to AFCA. Uh, I think that their picture was really really encouraging. Um, that organisations are getting better at resolving those and understanding their stakeholder needs and being able to resolve them to satisfaction. Um, ASK is also, you know, acquiring enough data themselves to be able to um, identify unmeritorious complaints and be able to eliminate those early in the piece. So I think an early fear of organisations around, you know, it being a bit of a time waster when they haven't been able to resolve it and the customer goes to ASKA, I think that, that ASKA themselves uh, are identifying those and trying to get them out of the wash early. Um, so I thought it was a very, very encouraging piece. But again... It's funny with the overlap is that um, scams and crypto and asset complaints all coming up on their register as well. Um, so becoming a big problem for them from a regulatory perspective and, um, and you know, the, the flow on from one data breach over in one organisation that isn't even a financial services regulator is, you know, immense for everybody. So it's carrying through costs to a whole lot of other organisations as well, which is interesting. Um, they are also um, advising members that in 2023 there will be some guidance consult, um, consultation going on. So to keep a weathered eye out for yeah. New Year's reading instead of Christmas <laughs> reading. And I think they made a commitment to being better about communicating with organisations about the, the process of a complaint and where it's at and who it's going to be assigned to so that everyone is um, up to date and that they were going to give verbal advice, I think she said as well. Yes, uh, yeah. oh, and I thought, their, I thought their portal to seeing how you benchmarked amongst other organisations yeah. and to see where you are was really, really good. So um, really nice uh, dual user um, friendly website. So. Yes, if you uh, if you are a member and registered with AFCA, it's yeah, some really useful tools on there if you weren't already familiar with them to see how you are performing amongst your peers as well. So yeah. I should remind listeners that we've spoken about the regulators and, of course, we are confined a certain amount of time, but there are lots of other great sessions out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we started this podcast, Naomi, you mentioned the practice notes and assurance Um uh, we began, so maybe that's where we should go now and let everyone know about this this first publication from us released on the conference day. Will do. Um, so we've been at work for a while, and Annette Donsela and the alumni team have working on the three lines of assurance paper and taking that to a new level last year, as we saw. And then throughout this year, we've been working or, or had aimed to work on a series of practice notes and as with all things, the launch of the first one took a little bit longer, but I think we've really refined down and tackled the toughest one of all, which was, which was how assurance plays into those three lines and really teasing that out. So that practice note is available for GRCI members only, and it's available on the, on the website. Um, you will be required to log in to access it, and if you are having trouble accessing it, you can always email us. We'll have that there as well as a link to the original paper, so you can see it all in detail. And then you can see how the practice note sort of teases that out. And again, rather than being a checklist, it sort of walks you through what the critical success factors are, what it might look like if it's actually working effectively um, and explaining what that point of view, uh, what the 
what the it looks like if it's actually working and and how you can sort of self assess that. But I think the really the really important thing to tease out in this is every time we have a three line conversation with people exterior to compliance, we had a lot of people going, oh, isn't that audit? And I think that's what we would need to step away from is that obviously compliance does some monitoring, but if it's all left up to second line to do some monitoring, then audit comes in and checks. You're going to find out stuff, you know, you will have zero lead indicators and you'll find out stuff maybe a year or two after an incident has occurred, which is not going to satisfy the requirements of any of the regulators who were speaking at the conference date. So I think that there's a lot of value in that. But what we did tease out, especially in the workshops, was how to have those conversations to make sure you're not replicating exactly what you do in the three lines. So it's not that defence model where you're trying to close off the Swiss cheese holes in the normal way of doing the same thing and then doing the same thing a different way. You are monitoring different things and you're monitoring in different ways. And I think the big thing that was pulled out by GRCI members is the use of line one should be looking after some of the stuff itself and line two then has the opportunity to be thematic about it and to really interrogate those rather than just doing some monitoring and then hoping that line three does some interrogation. And then line three can actually adopt a much more strategic role as well and pull back and have a look at the framework, have a look at really big picture issues as well as doing the drill down um, and not having to be forensic about it. So really important practice note, there will be more next year. And if you are a GRCI alumni, keep an eye out for the invitations to participate in those as well. Um, we really got a lot of value-added members talking about their experience. We will be developing case studies that go with them so you can see how it might work in an organisation of varying size. And we don't assume that everyone is a big organisation with all three lines embedded within the organisation either. So it gave real guidance to if you've got to have external audit, then that's the way it is. If you are a consultant, you know, who's basically the external compliance function for an organisation, how are you going to do that? So lots of, lots of talk about that in those groups. So invite everyone to have a read and then think about how they'd like to contribute to the next one. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute and the music was produced by Rob Neary.